God is good. It's great singing about his goodness. We follow him wherever he calls us. So encouraged to have these truths in song, even before we see them in sermon. Let's go before the Lord in prayer, um, as we always do, as we need God's help every time we open up the word together. And, and I just want to add in, um, Kyle uh, is also preaching this morning at another church, and so I want to pray for him as well, a fellow member, uh, using his gifts to edify another congregation. And it reminds me of, of the good, faithful, gospel-preaching churches and preachers all over this town and, and all over this, this uh, state and all over the country and all over the world. Let's just lift us all up today to this great and important end that every faithful local church is endeavoring in this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the privilege that we have to be able to gather, the freedom that we have to be able to gather, the blessing that we have to be able to gather, to hear your word, to learn from you, to be directed by you. Would you use Kyle as he preaches, Lord, to edify the saints of the church that he's at? Would you use me as I preach the word to edify the saints here at First Baptist Church of Gallatin? Would you use all the faithful churches and faithful preachers across the land to point to the biblical truth that you've given us and to glorify you in that end and to edify and equip the saints and to bring spiritual life to those who are dead and their trespasses and sins who do not see, who do not hear? Would you also bring life? We pray for all of that, not just here, but all over the world. We say this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the kingdom has come with Jesus. And the kingdom is powerfully demonstrated through Jesus' life and ministry as well. We saw that great demonstration, some of that last week, of Jesus' power in his compassionate and oh-so-effective healing of the unclean leper, the outsider centurion's servant, then the insider believer, Peter's mother-in-law, and then the oppressed and hurting. We saw that last week. What a powerful Savior that we have. Today, we're going to see Jesus' kingdom power through his unmatched authority over all things, over our very lives, over nature, and even over the dark spiritual realm. Jesus is authoritative. And all this is to ask and answer the question, who's the boss? Which many of you might remember that title from the 80s sitcom starring Tony Danza. Spoiler alert. The answer from our text to that question about who the boss is is not going to be Tony, of course, but Jesus Christ himself, the authoritative king. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 and verses 18 through 22, as we see in our first point, and number one, that Jesus is king over our convenience and plans. Let's see it in the word together. In verse 18, now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. 
And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus is king over convenience and even our plans. Now, I don't know about you, but the words and response of Jesus to those two different would-be disciples and followers of him doesn't seem to mesh with the modern-day church growth movement attractional model, does it? Did you see it? I want you to think about it. I want you to When you're reading, I want you to ask those questions. I know the thought bubbles that are going over your heads. I want us to be honest about it and see it from the text. Well, this past week, I looked up a few growth, church growth tips, and I did not see any examples of telling potential new members that if they come, they may end up homeless, or that they should just scrap their funeral plans and focus on the church. Not at all. You don't see that. The experts tell you to build your website or... Make the children's program stronger, or maybe um, be more welcoming to visitors, and really uh, make it easier to join and then harder for people to leave because of all the wonderful things that you're offering them week in and week out. Invite your friends, serve good coffee, follow up with people who visit, use social media well, hold community events. Now, now, these things aren't bad, are they? But you see that Jesus here, after the healings and deliverance and all the hype that was surrounding his ministry, he doesn't seem to be after skin-deep followers and doesn't seem to be worried about losing these two guys by the high standards that he calls them to, does he? Jesus doesn't lower the bar to get more of a crowd. And he isn't flattered by people who want to be around him and follow him even but he cuts to the chase and gets to the heart of two people who were on the fence in their intentions to follow Jesus. Remember, Jesus isn't impressed with looking for fence-leaning type disciples or bench-warming disciples or lukewarm disciples. No, he wants a people to follow him for the right reasons and for the appropriate motivations, doesn't he? He is the authoritative king overall who claim to follow him. He's king. Does Jesus not have the right to set the terms of following him? Does he not, as Lord and King, get to point us to the expectations of what it means to be a disciple or disciple of Jesus? Think about it. Jesus had just finished healing the multitudes and casting out demons, and Jesus was on mission there, and he had a plan in his short time on earth, and he really did and does have the authority to speak directly into these two men and their lives that day. Do you believe that? You might be a bit confused about how Jesus approached them and what he meant in this interchange, and, uh, but the confusion aside, we're going to be looking at that a little bit more in, in a minute in detail, 
Even Jesus' claims, and even if his claims, think about this, were as extreme as they appear at face value, ask yourself this very important question. Did Jesus have the kingly authority to make those claims on these men or not? And does Jesus have the authority to make demands on your life or not? I think before we even look at the details of the first few verses of our text here, that we need to examine our default kind of stature and standing and position before a holy God. Do we push back on the claims of Scripture? Do we push back on God? Or do we submit to him as king? Do we lean into the pursuit of happiness and convenience and start making all our plans in life without ever consulting God and his word? Where are we at? Or are we willing? Are we willing and ready with our hearts that are soft towards God so that when he may call us to something even difficult, we may actually go and do what he says? Where are you at today? Now, the first man who came to Jesus, he was a scribe. And it was kind of odd that this scribe would be interested in Jesus to begin with because many of his contemporaries were skeptical of Jesus' claims in ministry. But you see, this teacher of the law, this scholar, this scribe, seemed to be interested in following Jesus. You see it right there in the text. But Jesus knew that he didn't have the full picture of what he was, in fact, getting himself into. It wasn't going to be easy being a scribe and a follower of Jesus. So as Jesus saw the crowd after his healings and deliverance of the oppressed, he gave orders to cross to the other side. You might be thinking, the other side of what? Jay Adams helpfully explains on this point. He says, to avoid the crowds, Jesus gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Certainly, this is not what the crowds wanted. But unlike many today, Jesus was never governed by the will of the crowds. He did not operate according to what the polls indicated. He didn't even wet his finger and hold it into the air to see how the wind was blowing. His agenda was set by him and by his father, and he operated solely according to it. And then this scribe of all people came to Jesus in a positive way. Now, John the Baptist had already dealt with the kind of Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders, as we saw in Matthew 3, and he had to call them out. And Jesus, as you know, in his ministry, would have many examples throughout his life of kind of going head-to-head with the religious leaders who rejected him in his ministry. You see it all over our New Testaments, don't we? But now you have one who apparently wants to follow him. So what in the world was Jesus doing here? Why is he pushing them away if he seems to be an interested follower? In kind of a modern church context, we'd be kind of trying to change the subject, you know, of Jesus. Like, shooing uh, this guy away. Let's talk about something else. Jesus, come on, let's go. We're going to go in this other room. This doesn't seem like it's going to land this person to be a part of us here. We'd want to seal the deal with that person, get him signed up regardless of what he believed, regardless of what his actual intents were. We'd want to get him to sign on the line. We'd want to get him into church membership as quick as possible. This response to Jesus, to this guy, just seems to be off base with modern sentimentalities. 
I mean, can you imagine that? If you look in the text, it says that the sky would follow Jesus wherever he went. That sounds like some good words. He was going to follow him step by step. He's like, you want to go across the other side? No problem. I'm there. I will follow you wherever. It kind of reminds me of the disciples asking Jesus to be at his right and his left. If you remember that, Jesus had to correct them sharply, telling them that they had no idea what they were really asking for. And that's what Jesus does here too. He tells the scribe that he's got no idea. He calls kind of him out for where he's at, and he responds to this zealous attempt of the scribe to get on the inside and to be a follower of Jesus because he knew exactly where he was at. And Jesus, you see, doesn't call disciples to follow him to the good and easy, convenient life, does he? Jesus isn't like, oh, goody, this guy wants to follow me. How nice. No, he knew the hard life that he would live. And he knew the hard life that his followers would undergo as well. And contrary to the health and wealth preachers, Jesus was not materially or financially rich on earth, was he? He didn't store up mansions and compounds in his earthly ministry. You look through the Gospels, you won't see anything like that. In fact, foxes and birds have it better than him. At least they had holes and nests to go to. Jesus didn't. He was on the road, on the move. He would teach and he'd be attacked. He'd be misrepresented. He'd be persecuted. And then he'd ultimately be killed. And so would many of his followers, right? And following a guy like Jesus was not going to be some nice and easy, convenient stroll in the park, was it? And he made that clear. He made it clear. There will be persecution. This is not going to be easy. There's a cost to this. Do you pursue convenience as your primary focus and goal in your life? In your heart of hearts, is getting more comfortable in life your driving focus that keeps you going? If so, it's going to be hard for you to prioritize following Jesus in the Christian life. If you're not going to follow Jesus where he calls, hear this, then you're going to be choosing convenience over obedience. Where are you at? Well, what about this other guy? He was following Jesus too. This one might strike you as even more harsh or hard or difficult to wrap your mind around, but this guy's like, time out, Jesus. I mean, we get, time, we get, we get three timeouts, right? We can, we can stop this thing and we can have a discussion here. Time out, Jesus. I know you said that we were gonna go to the other side. I know you have a plan for what's next. And he kind of counsels Jesus. You hear this. I, I totally wanna be a part of everything that you got going on. And I'm all in and excited about following you, Jesus. But here's this one thing. Let me go care and take care of my father first. And it was kind of like a, yes, I will follow you, Jesus, but a, but a yeah, but. We know what, what that is, right? We know what a yeah, yeah, but is in our lives too. Now, I've done plenty of study to grasp the context here because burial practices during Jesus's time were, were much different than today. So after doing some, some digging here, 
uh, no pun intended, um, here's what I found. Some commentaries pointed to the fact that there were actual, actually some burial practices that were kind of in two parts. Once their loved one died, they would, they would do something initially, but they would wait until the decomposing of the body and bones for, for even up to a year to do this different practice later. Up to a year later. So, so this could have been Jesus knowing this guy's prolonged situation, and it was just not going to fit with the authoritative king's plan in that context. Remember, Jesus knew exactly what was going on. We might not know all these details, but Jesus did, and he spoke right to the situation. Others, and I tend to lean more in this direction in terms of the explanation, they point out that this would-be follower of Jesus would not be out and about with Jesus that day if his dad had actually just died. He was probably still alive. And that because the initial Jewish burial practice were, were immediate, so if his dad really was already dead, he wouldn't be there for an intermission kind of hangout session with Jesus. He wouldn't be there in that context, would he? So, so I think the idea here is that this guy was wanting to get all of his ducks in a row before following Jesus. He wanted to stick around his folks a while while they were likely close, close to their death and his inheritance coming soon. You could see the practicality in that, right? I'm just Wait till I get it financially good. Wait till this last step and then I'll come follow you. He's like, I plan on following you. Maybe not right now across this lake. <laughs> Maybe not now, okay? Or maybe not in the next several months or years. Let me first get my inheritance and take care of business on the home front. Then, then, Jesus, then I'll go. Does that work? That's my time out discussion with you, Jesus. What does Jesus say? No. Jesus isn't interested in bartering with us or with this guy. He calls him to follow him. He calls us to follow him. Period. And in this guy's situation, Jesus was calling him to follow him now. Look, everyone, this is Jesus Christ, the king we're talking about. He gets to decide our plans, not us. We submit to his plans, not the other way around. Right? Jesus is like, in either situation, whether waiting a year for the decomposing body parts or or waiting for his parents to pass away to get an inheritance, he's like, I am king, follow me. Let the spiritually dead bury their own. I'm calling you to to the spiritually alive kingdom, and my kingdom is not going to wait for your affairs. You must lay aside your own plans and follow me with my plans. You see what Jesus is saying here. As Americans, we don't like people telling us what to do, do we? But as Christians, we better realize That we are not the boss. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the boss. And he's calling you to follow him like he was calling this guy who wanted to drag his feet. You better get with the program. Does that make sense about what what Jesus is getting across here with these guys? This is not about Jesus being careless and insensitive. Of course, he wants us to honor our parents. Jesus knew this guy. There's other places in the New Testament where Jesus kind of calls out people's lack of care and respect for their parents. This is not a disrespect for his parents. This is not a going against the commands to honor our parents. Jesus saw and knew something else in this guy's heart, and he was calling it out. He knows the excuses. He knew his. He knows yours and mine as well. 
Jesus has heard it all. I'll follow you after I live it up a bit. Or I'll follow you more once I'm more situated and stable in life. I'll follow you after I get these other things worked out first. Or, or I'll follow you under these specific conditions. I don't like this plan over here, but if you do it just this way, Jesus, oh, if you do it just this way, I'll follow you. He's heard all the excuses. That's not how it works, though, is it? Jesus is king over our convenience and preferences and even over our plans. Hear this. If your plans are not submitted to his plans, revealed in his word, then Jesus really isn't king of your life. Let that sink in here on this first point. This leads us now to our second point in number two. Jesus is king over storms and sea. See it with me in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, and the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. Now, I was tempted to break this sermon into parts because of how much we looked at in this first point that we just saw, but I decided to truck on here for us to see together the kind of kingly, sovereign authority Jesus really has all here in this one sermon. Not just over our lives as we saw, but even over nature itself. And I'd say we're much more familiar with this storm passage, right? Because it's a lot more of a popular passage to preach, and you probably heard a lot about it. You know, more popular than that other section that we looked at to start here. So this is going to probably go a little bit quicker, so we're going to kind of pick up steam here. But I'm not going to say here in this point what you might think that I'd say, I'm not going to give us the cliche sermonizing in this point and tell us all that Jesus is going to get us through the storms of life. Look, Jesus, of course, is the one we trust in the hard storms of life. You know, I believe that. You know that scripture teaches that, but that is not the question here. Of course, he is the one that we go to for help. But the point of this passage is not to bring it back on us alone, but to submit ourselves under the powerful kingdom authority of Jesus and to see him for who he is. I don't want us to miss that. Craig Blomberg perceptively wrote, as it relates to this kind of thing, this normal way of reading a text like this, he says, Matthew did not likely have such an application in mind. 
the one that I'm referring to. There are implications for discipleship here, he says, to be sure. We must turn to Jesus as the one to trust in all circumstances in life. But the focus of this passage remains squarely Christological, which means it's all about Jesus. On who Christ is, he says. Not on what he will do for us. One who has this kind of power can be no less than God himself, worthy of worship, irrespective of when and how he chose chooses to use that power in our lives. Sometimes he leaves storms unstilled for good and godly ends. And to see that Jesus even has power over the wind and the waves, I want us to get a glimpse of this. No other man in all of history had that kind of power. To go from snoozing on a storm-tossed boat, I mean, can you picture this scene for a moment? The waves are coming in. The wind is howling. All the commotion. And and Jesus is just sleeping through all of it. I wish I had that skill. I know... My wife, Stacy, wishes she had that skill, right? (laughs) With six kids, it could seem sometimes impossible during certain times and seasons in life to even try to get a wink of sleep because all that's going on. Jesus, though, was so tired that he lay there fully asleep while everything was splashing and tossing and rolling about him. But he lay there sleeping. Amazing. The disciples clearly didn't fully grasp all that Jesus was at this point, did they? They had heard him preach and teach in ways that blew all their other teachers out of the water. Oh, they saw his authority there. They had seen miracles and had been called personally, specifically by him. And they had, but they hadn't figured out exactly who they were dealing with. We're going to see a little bit more about who this wonderful king, authoritative, sovereign Jesus is right here in this point. They were fearful because they thought they were about to die. Have you ever had a near-death experience? I know not all of you have, but I'm sure there are some. That close call on the highway or the near-miss boating accident, or the heavy machinery and, and, and farming, maybe something almost went bad. Maybe something was pretty scary and got you, your heart beating a little bit. Or maybe heavy turbulence in, in a plane where you're like, is this, is this thing going down? Or maybe you've got sleepy on a long trip and you just came to your senses and you're just, what is going on? I need to stop now and sleep because I am not in a good place here. Have you ever been in that near-death Moment. Not all of us have, but maybe some of you have. This was one of those near-death moments for the disciples. I want to take that for granted. This was a seriously scary storm. And they were freaked out, to say the least, weren't they? And Jesus wakes up from his nap after being exhausted by all the great ministry he's doing. And before he rebukes the storm, he rebukes his followers for being so faithless, doesn't he? Now, Jesus knew who he was and what he was capable of, and apparently the disciples hadn't gotten the memo. But Jesus calls them out for their lack of faith, and then in a moment, in the midst of the huge waves crashing and splashing over the boat, the disciples are thinking that the storm is actually going to 
kill them. So this was not some weak, soft, small, churning waters and kind of little bit bustly day or something. No, this was a vicious high winds, large waves, and tons of water inside the boat that shouldn't be inside of a boat, right? You don't want water in the boat. Water is out the boat. That's what the, that's what the boat is for. There's a bunch of water coming in. They're scared. They think they're going to die. They think they're going to drown. And then in an instance... With the power of his will and rebuke towards the wind and the sea, it immediately at that moment went from chaos and near death to calm and pure bliss. Could you imagine being there for that? And how do you suppose his disciples responded to him in that situation? You see, this is about showcasing Jesus and his divine authority over nature. He created all things, as Hebrews tells us, the Son the second person of a trinity, the word, created all things. And he certainly was sovereign all over all the elements in the world, even natural things like storms in the sea. This was a display of his power. You see it? What a powerful King Jesus that we serve. The disciples went from being afraid and in awe of this great storm to marveling then and being in awe of Jesus after the miracle calming of the storm. As R.C. Sproul put it, hear this. He says, he had saved them from the storm. And as a result, they were more frightened of him than they had been of the storm afterward. They're just kind of looking at him thinking, just marveling and astonished. Who is this guy? What just happened? overwhelmed at the sight of a man, Jesus Christ, who was sovereign over the waves. He was God incarnate, fully human, even displayed in the fact that he needed to sleep. But fully God, even displayed in the fact that even with his sovereign, powerful will, he was able to calm the storms. It blew his disciples away. They couldn't believe it. Now, as mentioned, the disciples lacked faith and trust in Jesus when they should have been confident of his care of them, right? Now, do you think after a display like that that their faith might have grown? You better believe it. Let this well-known account of Jesus' awesome power increase your faith as well. He is God who can calm the sea. He is someone to worship and trust and go to all the time. I said that this point wasn't going to be all about us, but about Jesus. But certainly the display, his powerful display, should drive us to the Savior for help in times of need. With confidence. Why? Because of the great power and ability as even the winds and sea obey him, as the disciples said and marveled. What a powerful Savior. This leads us now to our third and final point to see in Matthew 8, 28 through 34, and number three, that Jesus is king even over Satan and demons. Look with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 28 for this. And he went, and when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. Coming out of the tombs, 
so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And verse 34, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This last point is as miraculous as the last one. His power over the wind and sea, now showing his power over dark spiritual forces of the world. This proved that he was Messiah. This is who he said he was. It's prophesied that a, a man like Jesus would do exactly this. But do you see as we saw there in the reading of the text, that this point also demonstrates to us that not everyone loves and appreciates Jesus' ministry of getting good works of power in this world, do they? Did you pick up on that when we read it? Do you think that two crazy guys indwelt by demons, who as we read about in the other gospel accounts, were so bad off that at least one of them was cutting himself with sharp stones, was breaking chains that the townspeople had put on him to restrain him. The chains would not hold him because one of them even had a legion of demons indwelling him, many of them, as we learn from the other gospel accounts in Luke and Mark. So many demons indwelling at least one of them, and the other guy was also demon-possessed as well, as we see in Matthew. And they were in the tombs and had a reputation of the town crazy guys, the bloodied and destructive and train wreck of people over there in the tombs. That's what they were known by from this town. They all knew how bad off and desperate these two poor men were. And you'd think that someone delivering them would cause everybody to rejoice and thank Jesus for his good ministry and good work and this good deed of delivering from their miserable condition. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? But they didn't do that, did they? What do they do? They instead shooed Jesus off like as he was an unwanted mangy dog. They begged him to leave their region They didn't want anything else to do with him. This is Jesus we're talking about. The healing savior, the authoritative king. They wanted him gone. You see that? And hear this, not everyone who sees and hears about the true person and work of Jesus likes the ministry that he brings, do they? They may have been upset, the people, 
at the momentary loss of the herd of the many pigs that drowned that day. That could be one reason. Or they may have just been spooked by the miraculous demonstration of a kingdom power that they just didn't understand and appreciate because they did not have eyes to see and ears to hear what Jesus was doing, that Jesus was Lord. They couldn't rejoice. They couldn't see it because they were spiritually dead. Reminds me, this Friday, this past Friday, I went to the Gallatin Bulldog game against the Trenton Bulldogs. In the beginning of the game over there in Trenton, I stopped by to see pastor of First Baptist Church and uh, visit with him a little bit at the beginning. And then I was going to go over to the, the visitor side and, and be with church members and all the Gallatin Bulldog fans. But in the very short time as I got there and visited with him, the Gallatin Bulldog scored two touchdowns right there while I'm sitting there next to my, my friend and other Trenton Bulldog fans. And let me tell you, when they should have been rejoicing as I was rejoicing, the touchdown happened and it was just silent. I'm looking around. I'm, I'm not kidding. There was tons of people at the beginning of the game. A lot of them left on, on, the, on the home team side because it was a 46-6 to six, uh, victory. So that sometimes happens in games. But... I'm there, and when they're, I'm thinking, shouting and excitement, there was silence. They weren't excited about what I was excited about. They weren't excited about all those people across the field who were erupting, you could hear them so loud. And then after that second touchdown, I'm like, look, Josh, I got to go. This is really of a bummer being on this side. I need to go cheer with the Gallatin fans on the other side. But you see, the townspeople weren't getting what Jesus was doing as it was a great thing. They should have been rejoicing, but they were silent. They were even irritated by it. They were not happy about it. They didn't see it because they didn't have spiritual life. They asked the Son of God to leave. They kicked him out, basically. What an evil town this was. What spiritually dead people who can look to Jesus Christ in the eyes after he demonstrated faithful and compassionate ministry and then send them packing. The other passage says that at least one of these guys was even converted One of these guys that were so bad off. It says that after this move of Jesus, he was clothed and in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus after the legion of demons were cast out of him into the pigs. What an amazing conversion story. The most desperate person that you think that you know in your life who will never get saved, according to how it seems at face value. Let me uh, encourage you with something. They're probably not worse off than this guy who had all those demons within him. But that guy, he got saved. Don't lose heart and give up on that impossible person in your life that you long to see saved but who seems so lost, almost impossible. Here's the good news, church. Jesus saves the unsavable, doesn't he? And he's Lord and King over all. And we must submit to his plan for our lives, no matter the cost of being his disciple. Why? Because he's the boss. He's the boss. And if he calls, will you go? If he reveals something in his word, will you heed it? Or will you take your own opinions into consideration and just ignore God's word and what he says? Where are you at? And do you love real Christian ministry? Do you love God's word? 
Do you love God's works? Do you see the good that God is doing and praise him because of it? Or do you shun him and push him away like the town did that day? I mentioned this in our table talks this past week and as we discussed the difference between believers and unbelievers experiencing the same Christian ministry in God's work. How do they respond? We kind of talked about that topic a little bit. I shared how I remember prior to my conversion at 18 years of age, even though I had a profession of faith, I got baptized when I was 10 years old, but I wasn't a believer yet. I wasn't regenerate yet. But I remember being in church growing up and being rather annoyed on the inside during prayer times with people at my church. I remember getting irritated and feeling uncomfortable. I blamed it on not liking the interactions that people made under their breath in prayer, the amens and the yeses and kind of the nodding and even audible gestures of agreement and passionate appreciation of prayer. No, I'd get annoyed and I'd say that kind of thing is hokey and it would just bother me. I just didn't get it. I just wasn't excited about it. It was revealing something in my heart that I didn't see the problem, but this was a reality kind of looking back after my conversion. In reality, though, I said I loved God. I hated all the things of God. In my heart of hearts, though I wouldn't say it out loud, I despised that good and godly Christian ministry because I did not have spiritual life yet myself. And look, if you're here with us and you don't have it yet, you won't love the preaching of the word either. You won't love prayer. You won't love fellowship with other believers or meaningful Christian discipleship and conversation. You will be like me prior to my conversion and push against biblical, faithful ministry and work. You'll be like the townspeople wanting to send Jesus packing after a display of good mercy and grace and amazing ministry. Ask yourself this question, church. What am I looking for in a church? What am I looking for in Jesus? What am I looking for in the Christian life? What excites me? What thrills me? And then on the flip side, what, 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 what repulses me? What irritates me? What are the things that you love and prefer and esteem when it comes to ministry and life? The townspeople weren't interested in what Jesus was selling, so to speak, were they? They didn't like his ministry because they didn't have spiritual life. They didn't see him and submit to him as king. But new spiritual life makes all the difference. I want you to see that. Believers would rejoice at the conversion of someone in that sad state. I heard the amens when we heard about this guy getting converted in this very room. I would expect that. Why? Because we're excited when someone gets saved who is so bad off. But if it falls on deaf ears, it's revealing more that unbelievers are are engaging and seeing and and pushing away. Unbelievers, you see, will even get mad at good ministry and the things that Jesus reveals in his word. They're gonna shove Jesus Christ out of their midst like that evil town did that day. But you see, Jesus displays his kingly authority, not only over these two gentlemen who appeared to have different plans than Jesus, as we saw in our first point, And not only kingly authority over nature itself, he's Lord. 
this powerful display over the winds and the seas. Not only over that, but also the, the, the wonderful, amazing work over spiritual forces and demons themselves who knew exactly. You see, these demons knew exactly who Jesus was. You see the irony of this? Others missed it, but the demons, these men who were possessed by demons, knew who he was. And they feared the judgment they knew would come someday. They knew it was coming because they know what the scriptures reveal. It reveals a future judgment for them. That's why they asked to go to the pigs instead. You see, this display of sheer power and authority should just cause all of us to submit to Jesus' boss over each of our individual lives as well. Is he the king also over you? He's king over all these things. But is he the king over you by the way that you submit to him? I pray that he is, and let's pray to that end together. Father, we're thankful that you reveal these wonderful things in your word for us to get so excited about and encouraged about and to have our our faith increased and strengthened because of what you alone can do. Lord, I ask that you would, would turn, that you would unlock the key to the hearts that are hard, to turn them towards a love for you and your word and your ministry and, and the truth and Jesus so that they would want to follow and love and pursue your son because of who he is. Would you cause people to be moved in this way? And would you cause all of your saints here in this room, all the believers in this room are watching online, would you cause them to have their faith increased? Would you cause them even by what we've seen to strengthen their passion and love for your son and for the ministry and for the word so that they might be all in following Jesus, not on the sideline, not lukewarm, not on the bench, not on the fence, but fully following your son, Jesus Christ, willing and ready to go wherever he may call. Would you move in each of our hearts in these ways? We know that only you could cause these things, and so this is why we pray to you, asking for your help. Would you help us? Would you move in all of our hearts? We say this in Jesus' name. Amen.